if you've heard it, been at church the last few times that I've spoken, you'll know that I have a few worries, me pregnancy stories, and I couldn't resist just one more. Um, and so, but this one is just a little bit of my heartbreak at the moment. And last time I was pregnant, it wasn't the easiest pregnancy. And so I was just sick and sore, and it just got a bit hectic. And I remember everyone telling me it was worth it. And Jono, my husband, said it's especially worth it because I'm having this amazing time of bonding with my child before he comes out. So I've almost got this head start on bonding. And I thought, that's fantastic. I'm going to have this special bond for the rest of my life, and no one's going to come between us. At about six months old, I saw that Alexander was starting to favor Jono. And I thought, this is cool. You know, stages, like sleep regression lasts a few weeks. You know, you, you go through these stages in life, and it's soon going to be over. And then next thing I was pregnant, and I didn't have enough time and energy to spend with him, so Jono stepped in even more, and I just saw his ratings go up, 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 up. And things in our home are quite tough at the moment, because I'll go get him in the morning, and he'll walk down the passage, and he'll cry until he finds Jono. If Jono goes and gets him in the morning and I want to lie in, I have perfect peace, because he doesn't really care whether I'm awake or asleep. And that's just the tone of things. When Jono leaves, he cries. When I leave, he waves goodbye and blows me a kiss. There's no special bond. It has broken me, and I'm insecure, and I'm feeling rejected. And I just thought, you know, sometimes we can make God feel like that. He has designed us for this perfect relationship, but things get in the way. And it's not from his side. My love for Alexander remains the same. I'm longing for it. I'm longing for him to come and say, you first. I pick you. And when he cries, that he wants to come to me and not Jono. And it's not how it is. And it is so easy in life to become distracted and worship other things and make God seem second best in our lives. And so my challenge today is that we just want to put right worship in its rightful place. We want to get into a pattern of worshiping God as he should be worshipped, as he deserves to be worshipped. And God wants to be worshipped. It's something that we even would agree with in our heads. But the devil is contending for our affections, and he'll throw things our way. So I'm just going to pray that God will do a work in our lives and just speak to us. So Lord, I just pray, have your way. Come and speak to us. Holy Spirit, come and empower your word. Um, we know that your word is truth. Come purify us with your word. Lord, we pray that the devil will not get a foothold. And if he has had a foothold in our lives and he's competed for our affections, Lord, that you will come and take your place as number one in our lives. That we'll give you our complete devotion. That we'll just step into that beautiful relationship, that worship relationship that you have intended for us. So have your way here tonight. Amen. Now, when I, when I agreed to, to speak on worship, I, think, I thought it was exciting and quite a simple thing to speak on. And as I was preparing this week, I, I kind of re-prepared so many times. I kept on changing what I was going to say because I thought, how do you do God justice? How do you do this topic justice? When we've just sung a song like indescribable, there's, God is so incredibly indescribable. He is so great and mighty. How do you do a topic justice? And um, so I've fearfully prepared. And my idea tonight is just to keep it simple. And what I'm doing is just sharing four stories from the scripture that have impacted my life and my worship and my story and hopefully they'll impact yours and as I said God's word is truth and hopefully he'll minister to you through his word and when we look at the scriptures we we see so many examples of worship 
Um, but I was just looking at um, Piper, and he just had a good differentiation of what we talk about worship, because we talk about what we're going to do in about 25 minutes as worship. And, but but there's, a, there's a far deeper worship. So what Piper says is he talks about the inner essence of worship and the public expression of worship. And he makes those distinctions because the, the, the kind of the inner essence is what needs to happen first. It's that work that God does. It's that worship that we have towards him that, that we just we glorify him. It's something that happens in our spirit. It's, it doesn't necessarily come in a song. It doesn't come in an act. It doesn't come in. It's something that when our spirit just connects with God's and we worship him and put him in his rightful place. We give him the honor that he deserves. And then our public expression is almost that physical manifestation of worship. It's when we're singing together. It's your act of worship. When you're going to work and just kind of giving God the glory. When, you, when you're ministering to others, that is your act of worship. And so they're two different things. Jesus speaks about in Matthew 15. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. You see, it is possible for us to come to church and sing in worship, but our hearts are far away. So first what we need to go do is get a journey of, um, go on this journey of, of our inner essence, our inner worship, um, kind of lining up with what God wants, and then it manifesting and flowing into physical expression. And so there are four images that I'm just going to be speaking about, and it's just the one is knowing the God we worship, our relationship with the God we worship, our response to the God we worship, and a pattern of worship. And I'm just going to do it through four simple biblical illustrations. So I think tonight is short and sweet, and, but hopefully challenging to you because these scriptures have challenged me. And the first and most important thing is knowing the God we worship. We need to know who it is and, and what he is and what he is all about. And my, my mind when I was preparing went straight to Revelation 4. And this scripture I'm going to read because I think... Um, it almost seems like John is battling to put into words what he has been shown. And if John is battling to put into words what he's been shown in Revelation, then I'm just going to stick to his words. And so Revelation 4 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And all of a sudden, he sees this, this heavenly manifestation. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes. Sounds a bit weird, but they were covered with eyes in the front and the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth, like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, 
Honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will you were created and have their being. By your will they were created and have their being. And it's just this completely otherworldly experience. It's, it's almost surreal. As, as John tries to put into words what he has seen in the spirit, what he has seen as these creatures worship God. But it is just so incredibly amazing to see the words like honor, almighty, mighty, completely worthy. Just these, and, and just the fact that the elders, every time they worship, just have to lay down their crown and just bow down before God because he is so incredibly worthy this is just this uninterrupted beautiful worship that we'll experience in heaven one day and the amazing thing is that it's so it's so otherworldly and it's so foreign to us but the strange thing is is that the more you spend time in worship the more you spend time with God honoring him the more these things start to make sense the more they become beautiful imagery I remember as a child reading this and hearing about it probably in Sunday school and just thinking that sounded quite incredibly boring imagine just worshiping God non-stop have you ever felt like that like isn't heaven going to be a bit strange like that so so dull where we're just going to be worshiping God all the time but as I spend time with him, I've realized that this is such a beautiful reality, just being in his presence. And that's just because it, if this isn't a reality to you, if you haven't fallen in love with God, if you haven't stepped into relationship, this is going to seem rather dull. But as you contemplate and you spend more time reading the scriptures, reading what God is like, learning about his love and his greatness, his holiness, his might, all of a sudden these things make sense and they become beautiful word images. And I was thinking about it that it's, it's probably like a wedding speech. If you've been married or, or you've been to a wedding, if you've got married or been to a wedding, and, and just the wedding speech, I remember, I don't remember exactly what I said, but in that moment, I just wanted to honor Jono, and so I was just speaking about him. And I could have carried on speaking about him for ages, but I probably would have bored everyone else. But my love for him, I had fallen in love with someone who had loved me. And so the words that came out in that speech was just a manifestation of how I felt about this person. It didn't bore me. I wasn't thinking about myself. It was just this outward flow. And that is what worship is. You, you fall in love with God Almighty, and then worship just seems to flow out of it because you've been captivated by this Almighty God. And so it's not an uninteresting, dull relationship. But the danger is, is that if you haven't experienced this, if you haven't stepped into a relationship, worship can be very dull. If you come to church and you're singing things and you're finding worship is just an uninteresting experience for you, maybe it isn't, maybe you haven't had a true kind of inner experience of who God really is. And maybe you need to step into that first and that will revolutionize the way you worship. And then the next thing, so that is just knowing the God we worship, knowing his character, spend time learning about God's attributes. And then the next thing is the relationship with the God we worship. Now, this week I was actually, as I was contemplating using the scripture, I, um, I was putting Alexander to bed the one night and I, I was reading from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Now, this isn't, this is obviously kind of someone's, I almost see it as like a kid commentary on the scriptures, it's explaining scriptures to kids. But it was just worded so beautifully. So I actually want to read to you a bit from it because I actually found myself tearing up a bit as I was reading it to him. And it's a, the, the story of the prodigal son. 
Now, if you know the story, I'm just going to start a little bit in. But basically, the prodigal son asks his dad for his inheritance early because he wants to go and just experience the world and just, you know, have a whole lot of fun. So he does that. His father releases him. He goes and he squanders his wealth. And this is what happens. But soon his money runs out, and so do his friends. He ends up getting the only job he can find, feeding pigs. One day he's so hungry and so desperate, he even tries some piggy food. What am I doing, he says suddenly, as if he is woken up from a nightmare. He spits, yuck, all of it, ick, out of his mouth. My father is rich, and here I am in a pigsty eating piggy food. He wipes his mouth and dusts himself off. I'm going home. As he starts for home, though, he begins to worry. Dad won't love me anymore. I've been too bad. He won't want me for his son anymore. So he practices his I'm sorry speech. All this time, what he doesn't know is that day after day, his dad has been standing on his porch, straining his eyes. Sorry, it's making me emotional again. <laughs> I'm going to blame that on pregnancy hormones too, but I think it's also just so beautiful. Looking into the distance, waiting for his son to come home, he just can't stop loving him. He longs for the sound of his boy's voice. He can't be happy until he gets him back. The son is still a long way off, but his dad sees him coming. What will the dad do? Fold his arms and frown? Shout? That'll teach you. And just you wait, young man. No. That's not how the story goes. The dad leaps off the porch, races down the hill, through the gap in the hedge, up the road. Before his son can even begin his I'm sorry speech, his dad runs to him, throws his arm around him, and can't stop kissing him. Let's have a party, his dad shouts. My boy's home. He ran away. I lost him, but now I have him back. Jesus told them, God is like the dad who couldn't stop loving his boy. And people like the son who said, Dad, does my dad really want me to be happy? Jesus told people the story to show them what God is like and to show people what they are like so that they could know however far they ran, however well they hid, however lost they were, it wouldn't matter because God's children could never run too far or be too lost for God to find them. I don't know about you, but I just think it's such a beautiful way of putting that story to kids, and it, it kind of spoke to me. Um, but it's just one of those beautiful pictures and, and images that, that is so, for me, so mind-blowing. And I was just thinking about, put yourself in, that, in those days when you were living amongst Pharisees and Sadducees and this religious oppression that was based on rules and judgment, and you heard a story like that. It would have been mind-blowing. And to us, if you take it and you, and you just think about what we're living with today and just that the struggles you might be facing, the way you might feel about yourself and the fact that your heavenly Father, the God that we spoke about and read about in Revelation, will still welcome you into his arms because that's the sort of relationship he wants to have with you because he's the perfect Father. And he doesn't just say, yes, you can come into heaven and you've made it by the skin of your teeth and, you know, you, okay, I guess you can come, I'll make a, an exception for you. No. He says, welcome. He welcomes you with open arms, that heavenly Father who's waiting to just accept your worship, to enjoy you, for you to enjoy each other. And that's such a beautiful picture of worship. If you contrast that with the first image, it's just this holy, almighty God. Who are we that we deserve that sort of a welcome? yet he chooses to welcome us in that way. 
And so the next picture is our response to God. How do we respond to a God who's welcomed us so beautifully? And this one is a story that you might know as well. And, and basically, a Pharisee, a Pharisee invites Jesus to his home. And Jesus goes there for a meal, and he's reclining. And a woman who's known for her sinfulness um, comes into the... She hears that Jesus is in the house, and so she goes into the house. And she sits at his feet, and she's just weeping. And she's just washing his feet with her tears, which I thought as far as water restrictions goes, that's another one to put on Facebook. <laughs> if you cry all over yourself, you can get clean. Um, but, but she just cleans, she just with her tears, just, just cleans his feet. And, and, and then she just, she just wipes his feet with her hair and just in this beautiful humility, in this brokenness. I mean, imagine how much she must have actually cried for the tears to come and, and almost just bathe his feet. And, and then she breaks this beautiful, expensive perfume and she kisses his feet and just anoints him, just acknowledging the beauty of him. And it's such a beautiful response from such a broken woman. But the Pharisees don't see it that way. And, and they start to think, Simon starts to think, if this man was a prophet, he would actually know who was actually at his feet. You know, actually, this is quite a repulsive action. It's not beautiful. It's not worship. It's repulsive. And Jesus answers Simon and he says, I've got something to tell you. He says, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. And then then he turns to the woman, and this is his response. Um, to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then he just goes on to speak about the forgiveness of sins. And do you see how this woman comes in, in complete brokenness with a desire for restoration? She just wants to be whole again, and she just knows that Jesus, if she comes to him, she can just receive this healing. And the Pharisee's just blissfully unaware of his own sin. He's just sitting there in judgment, not engaged at all, not feeling the moment and this beautiful connection that this woman and Jesus would have had at that point. And just the the, the absolute worship that was coming, the worship that he actually requires. Psalm 51 um, speaks about, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And I just think it's so important is that the way we respond to God in worship actually is pivotal in displaying what's in our hearts, what we think about God and and what we feel about ourselves, how we see ourselves in the big picture of just going, you're great and mighty, there's none like you, you're incomparable, you're indescribable, you're holy, you're mighty, and I need you, here I am in need of a saviour. The Pharisee saw, showed and displayed what he felt about himself and how he felt about God. But so did this woman, and that was just such an appropriate response to a mighty God. And then the last is just the pattern of worship. And I just, um, there's a beautiful teaching in John chapter 4 where Jesus has a strange encounter with a Samaritan woman. 
and he meets her, he goes to, he's actually by himself for a little bit and he's going through Samaria and he goes and he sits at a well and a woman comes along and he asks her for a drink and they start talking about water and he goes on to, it's actually quite a strange conversation and you must go and read it because there's so many things that at first glance you don't read, they are quite hard to understand. Um, but Jesus starts speaking about living water and in those days, living water would have actually been a spring. So you would have a well, which would kind of be the water that you're going to, to kind of get out of the well. And then there's the living water, the spring of water that just doesn't stop. And Jesus starts speaking about this living water, but it's not even the kind of living water that she understands. And then they go and they speak about, about just that they have a, almost a bit more of a spiritual conversation. But Jesus then starts speaking about the truth of who she was. And for me, this actual conversation, John and I were chatting about it on Friday, and he just had um, some kind of fresh insights into it, which I thought was so significant because it changes the story for me quite a bit. And in those days, because I don't know about you, but I've always kind of seen her as the big sinner, um, but in those days, women weren't allowed to divorce men. So the fact that she had been divorced five times would have meant probably five traumatic rejections for this woman. And if you think... You know, for those of you that aren't even married, like, I can, you know, so for some of us, like, a breakup is traumatic. Even just a breakdown in a relationship in terms of friendship can be so hurtful. Then if you've walked the road with someone who's got divorced and you see the pain behind a broken relationship, imagine the baggage that this woman is carrying. And we always tend to focus on her just being the sinner who got called on her stuff when actually she would have been an incredibly broken woman who actually just for someone to give her attention, for a man to honor her and speak to her and share truth with her would have been so beautiful. And so Jesus highlights the truth behind it. He knows everything about her life because she runs into town later and she tells everyone, this man knew everything about my life. He had these insights. And then he switches the con she switches the conversation. It probably got a bit awkward. And so she starts speaking about worship. And they go into this kind of talk about where worship should be, who's kind of got the right pattern of worship. And, and, and Jesus teaches her about worship, and he says this. He says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you just almost see this pattern kind of coming out of the story, this journey, where, where Jesus kind of, he's on her turf, he's in Samaria. So she would have, you know, there was that whole kind of thing of, of, of Jews not, not honoring Samaritans and kind of looking down on them, but he's coming onto her turf, he's showing her respect, he's speaking to her one-on-one, -on -one. he's looking at her life and everything that she is, and he's speaking into that. And then he takes her to what worship is, he takes her to what true relationship is. And she leaves with a simple teaching, but a great understanding of what it is to worship in spirit and in truth. And the whole thing with worshiping in spirit can sometimes be confusing, but I think it's just entering into a spiritual realm, not, not focusing on the building, on the physical um, kind of manifestation, on what looks good from the outside, but worshiping from within. That's where it needs to come from. It's not what you look like when you're raising your hands, when you're kneeling down. It's about what's happening inside. It's about your spirit connecting with God because he is spirit. And in truth, he's just worshiping in a completely honest way, worshiping before God, being sincere with what you say, having words that are, that are genuine, not being hypocritical. 
And this woman, after she had, she had heard these teachings, after she had kind of heard these insights that Jesus had into her life, would have been almost completely exposed before him. It would have been such an honest conversation, and I feel like that's what worship should be. If I think about all of us here, for some of you I know you well, for others I don't know you at all, but I can almost guarantee you that so many people come with different kind of junk, different baggage, different pain, different hurt, and God knows and he sees it. So he's the God Almighty from the first point. He's the, he's the God who sees and knows, and he's here, and he knows your struggles. He actually wants to help you through it. He wants to get you to a place of worship where you can have the pattern of worshiping in spirit and in truth. And it's just, I think it just breaks it down so simply. If you want to just evaluate your worship and your pattern of worship, are you worshiping in spirit and in truth? Is this a reality in your life? And God knows, he knows your struggles, he wants to help you. He is a good father. He's the father from the story of the good, um, not from the good Samaritan, from the prodigal son. He's that good father. He's there to just accept your worship. He finds it beautiful like he did with the woman who was, who was sinful but still anointed his feet. And we're going to just kind of land it here with a, a worship set. And, and as a worship team, if I can ask you to come up so long, but just to end, is... The whole thing that I started with is that there are the, um, there's the external and the internal when it comes to worship. And there's the, they kind of go hand in hand because what we're going to be doing now is we're going to be worshiping. And as I said, you need to start with getting your heart right before God and sorting your heart out so that you can worship Him and so that our external, our physical worship here can be something that's, that's so spiritual that actually is so significant to you. And at the end of the day, if we're all singing together, it's a beautiful thing. But at the end of the day, God cares about the condition of your heart. And so we spoke about knowing the God that we worship. That's where it needs to start. Do you know God? Are you in relationship with him? And then having a relationship with the God we worship. And then our response to the God that we worship. And then developing this pattern of worship. Because it isn't just about what happens here tonight. In fact, this is a, such a small part of it. The big pattern of worship is what's happening in your life, in your heart, in your mind the rest of the week. So I'm going to commit this time to God. And I'm just going to pray that it really will be a significant time of worship as we just step into his presence. And that God will really just minister to you. And that your, your, that kind of inner essence of worship will match your public expression. That you'll be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. So, Lord, we thank you for your presence. We long for it. We long for more of it. We thank you for relationship of just how you, how you have revealed yourself to us as, as God Almighty. And, Lord, we just want to respond to that. Lord, we thank you that you see us in our humanity, our battles. Lord, there might be people here battling just with significant hurt, significant pain, significant sin, significant things standing in the way of truly worshiping you. Lord, come and deal with that. Come and speak to them, Lord. Come and speak to all of us, Lord. We truly want to have a pattern of worship. We are true worshipers of you, where we can worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. So we're just opening this time up for worship.